Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 21. Today we'll be reading book 6, chapters 8 through 10 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated and helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. So before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. I don't know if you've had the experience where you read a book and you didn't know who was important before reading the book. And so you're coming across a bunch of different names and you're trying to determine whether you should remember that name or forget that name just for purposes of memory management. Well, today we're going to focus on Olypius or Saint Olypius. And we're just going to say at the outset, he's important. So remember the name, remember the man. He is from Tagaste, where St. Augustine's from. He follows St. Augustine to Milan. Uh, we're going to see later, we're going to see in the course of this conversation, uh, that he converts with St. Augustine. And then he's eventually going to go back to Northern Africa with St. Augustine to be part of that original monastic community. He's going to be named the Bishop of Tagaste. And he's included in the, the Roman Martyrology, which means that he is considered throughout the course of the church's history to be a saint. So he's a big deal. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 8. Choosing not to forsake the secular course which his parents had convinced him to pursue, he went before me to Rome to study law, and there he was unbelievably carried away with extraordinary eagerness to watch gladiatorial shows. For while he was totally averse to such spectacles and held them in disdain, one day he ran into a number of acquaintances and fellow students who were coming from dinner. Amid his own strong refusals and resistance, they dragged him along with friendly force into the amphitheater when these cruel and deadly shows were underway. He protested, Though you might drag my body there and prop me up, can you also force my mind and eyes to look upon these shows? Thus, while present, I will be absent, thereby overcoming both you and them. Despite this, they urged him onward, desiring to see if he could actually do what he had said he would. When they arrived and had taken their places as best they could, the whole place was ablaze with that savage pastime. But he, closing his eyes, forbade his mind to range abroad after such evils. Oh, if only he also had stopped his ears. For during the fight, when one of the men fell, a mighty cry arose up from all the people, striking him strongly so that, overcome by curiosity, convincing himself that he could despise all this and feel superior to it even upon seeing it, he opened his eyes and was stricken with an even deeper wound in his soul than the bodily wound suffered by the man he had wished to see. And how much more miserable was his own fall than that of the man whose fall had raised the mighty noise of the crowd, 
entering Olypius's ears, unlocking his eyes, and thus paving the way to strike down and beat a soul that was more bold than resolute, and all the weaker in that it had presumed to do by its own power something for which it should have relied upon you. For as soon as he saw that blood, he immediately drank in the savagery, and not turning away his gaze, he fixed his eyes on it, gulping in the madness, unaware, taking delight in that guilty fight and becoming intoxicated by such blood-soaked pleasures. No longer was he the man he was when he had come, but now he was one of the throng to which he had come, a true associate of those who brought him there. Why say more? He beheld, shouted, kindled, and carried forth from there a madness that would goad him to return not only with those who first brought him, but also before them, indeed, dragging along others too. Yet, with your omnipotent and all-merciful hand, you plucked him from there and taught him to have confidence in you and not in himself. But this would take place later on. 9. But this was already being stored in his memory, so as to be a medicine later. The same is true, too, when, while he was still studying under me in Carthage, he was in the marketplace thinking over the passage that he was to repeat from memory, as students often practice, and you allowed him to be apprehended by marketplace officers who thought he was a thief. Now, you allowed this, O our God, for no other reason than, even then, to teach this man, who thereafter would prove to be so great, the lesson that no man should readily condemn another out of rash credulity when a case is to be judged. For as he was walking back and forth by himself before the judgment seat with his notebook and pen, behold, a young student, the real thief, who secretly brought a hatchet, got as far as the leaden gratings that fence in the silversmith's shop and began to cut the lead. However, when the noise of the hatchet was heard, the silversmiths below began to stir and sent someone up to apprehend whomever they might find there. Hearing their voices, the young man ran away, leaving behind his hatchet for fear that he might be found with it. Now Olypius, who had not seen the man enter, did, however, see him running out with haste. Desiring to know what had happened, he entered the area. There he saw the hatchet and stood wondering at the meaning of it, when, behold, the men who had been sent there found him standing alone, holding in his hand the hatchet that had led them to come forth. They grasped him, dragged him away, and gathered together those who were in the marketplace, boasting to them that they had captured a notorious thief whom they were now leading away to stand before the judge. But Olypius was to be instructed only this far, for immediately, O Lord, you brought aid to his innocence, which you alone witnessed. For as he was being led either to prison or to punishment, a certain architect who was in charge of the public buildings met them. They were glad to meet him, for he often suspected them of stealing goods that were lost in the marketplace. They were ready to show him someone who really committed thefts there. However, he had seen Olypius a number of times at the house of a senator to whom he often went to pay his respects. Immediately recognizing him, he took him aside by the hand and asked how this great calamity took place. Hearing the whole matter, he ordered all those present amid much uproar and threats to come with him. So they went to the house of the young man who had done the deed. There, standing before the doorway, was a boy who was so young that he looked likely to disclose the entire affair without grasping that he was doing any harm to his master. Indeed, he had traveled with his master to the marketplace, and as soon as Olypius remembered this, he told the architect. Then, showing the hatchet to the boy, he asked him, Whose hatchet is this? He immediately answered, Ours, and upon further questioning told them everything. The crime being thus transferred to that house, the gathered crowd, which was beginning to shout in triumph over Olypius, now was ashamed. Thus, he who was to dispense your word and examine many cases in your church went away with fuller experience and instruction. 10. 
I then met him in Rome and he clung closely to me, traveling with me to Milan, both so that he might not be separated from my side and also so that he might practice some part of the law that he had studied, more to please his parents than himself. In Rome, he had functioned as an assessor without succumbing to corruption, something that surprised many, while he himself was surprised that others could prefer gold to honesty. Moreover, his character was tried not only by the lure of greed, but also by the goad of fear. At Rome, he was the assessor to the official of the Italian treasury. Now, at that time, there was a very powerful senator to whom many were indebted for favors and whom many feared greatly. As one sees in men with power such as this, he asked for something to be permitted for him despite the fact that the law forbade it. Olypius resisted the request, and although a bribe was promised, he scorned it with all his heart, and when threats followed, he trampled them underfoot. Thus all wondered at his unusual spirit, neither desiring the friendship nor fearing the enmity of such a man who was renowned for his immense ability to do good or evil to others. And when the judge whom Olypius counseled, though unwilling to fulfill the request, nonetheless also did not openly refuse it, placing the whole matter squarely on Olypius's shoulders, claiming that the latter would not allow him to do it. And in truth, had the judge done so, Olypius would have left his service. He was, however, almost seduced in one matter because of his love of learning, wishing to have books copied for him at praetorian prices. However, reflecting on the justice of the matter, he changed his course for the better, judging that the equity that hindered him was in fact a greater gain than the power that would have allowed him to do so. These are minor affairs, but he who is faithful in little is faithful also in much. See Luke 16.10. Nor can we render void the words spoken by the mouth of your truth. Quote, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Luke 16, 11-12. Thus, with such a character, he clung to me, and both of us wavered in our direction as we sought what course of life should be followed. Nebridius left his native country near Carthage, and indeed Carthage itself, where he had lived for a long while, leaving behind his excellent family estate and house, as well as his mother, who would not follow him. He went from there to Milan for no other reason than to live with me in a most ardent search for truth and wisdom. Like I, he sighed. Like I, he wavered, this ardent seeker for true life and most acute examiner of the most difficult questions. Thus, gathered together were these three mouths of such destitute men, sighing their wants to one another and waiting upon you so that you might give them their food in due season. See Psalm 145, 15. And in all the bitterness that, by your mercy, followed upon our worldly affairs, we asked why we should suffer all this, receiving an answer, only darkness. Groaning, we turned away and asked, how long shall all this last? This too we often said, all the while not forsaking our worldly ways, for as yet nothing certain had dawned upon us for us to embrace instead of these things. So, in the course of this day's readings, or this episode's readings, we've heard a little bit about uh, St. Olypius's curiosity. And I think when we hear that word, we associate it with something good. It's like, oh, he's curious, you know, he's getting into different things. Maybe he's like into calligraphy or yachting, but I love me a dabbler. What a great thing. But in the ancient medieval understanding, in the classical understanding, uh, curiosity is not a good thing. It represents an inordinate desire to know. And you're like, wait, to know, that's a good thing. How could the desire to know be inordinate? Well, in St. Augustine's understanding, it can be bad if you want to know things that are less profitable in a way that displaces those things which are more profitable. It can be bad to desire to know if you go about it with the improper means or if you fail to refer it to God or if you go after things which are in fact beyond your capacity, which for us in the 21st century is hard to hear because 
you know, we grow up all thinking that we're going to be astronauts and we come to discover that we are not going to be astronauts. So it's hard for us to find our place. And um, we're, we're in this setting talking about Olypius's desire to see spectacle or to be involved with, you know, kind of wild and wonderful things, whether it be in the circus or gladiatorial, you know, kind of combat, as we'll hear in later kind of vignettes. So uh, Father Jacob Bertrand, we're talking about the desire to know. What are some like, I don't know, ways in which this is applied in our own lives or ways in which this comes home to roost in your experience or in your conversations with the people whom you serve? Roosting, roosting curiosity. Uh, <laughs> I was asked a question about this very topic at a Godsplaining retreat recently. And the question was posed as a sort of like, isn't curiosity about the created world, about the world that God creates, like a good thing because it's through like our curiosity about things that we come to discover and ultimately come to discover things of God and that sort of thing. And my answer was like, yes and no, you know? Yeah, curiosity can be a good thing, but as you described, if it's, I don't, I just remember you saying yachts and I don't remember what else was on your list, but um, <laughs> if it, essentially if, if curiosity, if our, if our inquiry and curiosity into things takes us away, I think from, from, I guess I would put it this way, from our vocation, from what it is that we're called to be doing, whether that's like, big V vocation or, you know, what we're called to be in our lives or even our duties such that it's a distraction, then it becomes problematic. And then also here with respect to Olypius and the circuses and vanity, if it is just a vain attempt to know random things or to be invested in random things that, that distract from God and from, you know, doing, fulfilling our obligations and duties and that sort of thing, well, then it becomes problematic. I think that's kind of the distinction, isn't it? Yeah. And and it seems that this is important to St. Augustine in the context of this particular work because it's the second time that he's mentioned it, or it's the second time that he, he's mentioned situations which speak to this phenomenon. Because we heard earlier about the circuses, and now we're hearing about gladiatorial combat, and I think it's going to crop up one more time. So it's a reminder to us, a healthy reminder to us, that our attention, our solicitude, you know, our care for things during our our earthly life is limited, right? We can't care about everything always. And so we try to care about those things which are highest, which are part of our vocation, which represent, yeah, like a step towards our growth and healing as individuals and our service of those, you know, with whom we find ourselves thrown into the mix. So there is a better and a worse, and it's not necessarily because, you know, okay, you know, like yachting is better than calligraphy, so you should always choose yachting over... <laughs> I got to stop. Um, no, but but it, it reflects your own personal journey and like how you're called to know and to love the Lord and then how other things fit into that picture. So it requires of us a kind of spiritual maturity to know who we are and what we're for in this life here, now, given the circumstances, etc. So St. Augustine cares a lot about it and it's worth caring about. Uh, the next thing, he, he, he goes on to talk more about St. Olypius, and he really reveres him for being an upright man, for being a righteous man. So he talks about this one placement that he had or this one job that he had, and he couldn't be bribed uh, because on the one hand, he couldn't be puffed up you know, by flatterers, but on the other hand, he couldn't be intimidated by those in positions of power above him. So there's something to Olypius where he's he's solid, you know, he's fixed, he's firm, he's stable, he's permanent. And I think that's something that we all hope to cultivate in our own lives, to become substantial individuals, to become real when everyone else around us may seem a little less than substantial or a little less than real. So I don't know, your experience of that? It, sometimes when I think of how Olypius is sort of, we could call him like principled, 
obviously he converts, so he's not a Christian at first. He converts with St. Augustine, as you mentioned earlier in the episode. I think, I don't know, when I first read or considered Olypius or read about Olypius, there was this sort of thought of that he's just kind of, he's just kind of stuffy. You know, he's just kind of like has these principles. He's not going to waver from them and just kind of a stoic. But and I think in in ways I've encountered people like that in my life. Like I'm not that disciplined or principled. So uh, to my shame, of course, but prudence, <laughs> I guess this is what I'm trying to what I'm trying to describe where like prudence doesn't enter in. It's just like sort of blind obedience to principles that someone has established. But I don't think that's who Olypius is. And obviously, St. Augustine recognizes his disciplined, his unwillingness to be bribed, you know, to pursue the good. And how, I think in in ways that we see St. Augustine's brokenness and sinfulness kind of carry, be a, a sort of catalyst to his conversion, I think the principled nature of, of Olypius not only offers St. Augustine an example of pursuing the good and virtue, but also is kind of the seedbed of his, of St. Olypius's conversion, that these things are, are perfected, you know, everything needs to be perfected in the Lord, but they're perfected in St. Olypius. So yeah, I was kind of struck by my own kind of thinking about who St. Olypius is and and that sort of thing. So I think he's probably better than than I originally let myself think he was. I think I was probably annoyed at his sort of like pagan virtues kind of thing. I was like, hmm. <laughs> well, I think that sometimes we find ourselves in a position where the witness of another person, it might be inspiring, but it also might be a little bit intimidating because we feel like it's condescending or patronizing words that I come to often. And I think that, yeah, it's it's tough because it requires a modicum of virtue to recognize the virtue of another person and not be turned off by it. And I think that we all, you know, like sometimes we all feel judged by those who might be better than us or might esteem themselves better than us. And it can be difficult to determine where that person actually fits or where that person stands at the current moment. But yeah, I think that there's like, there's a kind of you know, saintly disposition, which we're all trying to cultivate, where we're we're looking for the truth or we're looking for the good, regardless of whether it's said by this, that, or the other person, or regardless of whether it's evinced in this, that, or the other life. Like, we want to be, like, kind of on the lookout for it. We want to be in the, the scavenger hunt of life so that we can test whatever we discover against, you know, what the Lord's doing in our life and incorporate what is true and good and then set aside what's not. But that's just, yeah, it requires of us, yeah, it's just... <laughs> It's easier to say like, that guy's a jerk. I'm going to set aside everything about his life and not consider it any further. It's like when you get criticism from one of your friends, it's like, yeah, well, you're a hypocrite and, you know, just a butthead. So no, no chance that I'm going to incorporate any of this into my life. But then you have to say to yourself, okay, maybe there's a grain of truth. Maybe there's a mountain of truth. I need to receive it. I need to judge it. I need to weigh it. I might need to incorporate it, which is brutal because it requires humility. And humility is one of those virtues that can't be faked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, here we go. Uh, so just turning then to the, uh, the end of the passage from which we read, we have this charming scene where Olypius, I mean, I don't know if it's charming, it's kind of harrowing, but he's accused of a crime he doesn't commit. Eventually he extricates himself from it. And St. Augustine says, this is an occasion whereby we learn, or he learned, not to execute rash judgment. So to be merciful uh, with those who might seem to have whatever committed crime, as in this instance, or w whatever the situation is in which they find themselves, we should, we should just be gentle with other people, merciful with other people, because we've all been falsely accused or all, all been falsely suspected. So, Father Jacob Bertrand, does this mean that we never execute judgment of any kind, or does this mean something else? I hope it's not the first, because I'm really good at the first. I, like, executing judgment <laughs> is, I think, my vocation. <laughs> you know, that's, I'm, I'm just doing it all the time. But there's, 
I think in, in sort of executing rash judgment or kind of comparison, these sort of things, it's an easy way to sidestep reality because a couple of things happen is one, we often don't know the sort of entirety of the story of what's going on and the circumstances and that sort of thing. And that's not to say we can't observe evil being done, but you know, there's, we're not in the position of God in this sort of thing. Uh, the other thing too, is that often what we, we use judgment to kind of puff ourselves up to say like, in one way or another, I'm not as bad as that, or I don't do that. So um, that person's a, a jerk or an idiot or whatever. And then it also requires our establishing sort of establishing our own parameters of reality and what constitutes like goodness and that sort of thing so that and we're good at kind of making ourselves the victors in those moments. So when when we give into this sort of immediate rash judgment, we don't actually acknowledge the person with whom we're engaging or reality that we're all in. So it, it kind of creates a a sort of environment where we're just going to win and that's not always true or good or it doesn't enable enable us to yeah, the other person becomes an object in, in a way, you know, in different ways. So it, it can be a dangerous habit to form. Yeah. So we need to remain open to certainly the encouragement and correction of others, kind of vulnerable to our Christian, our human experience, because otherwise we kind of become scarred and we kind of become inured to human contact and divine contact, which often passes by way of human contact. So a challenge, but one that St. Augustine will certainly intercede for us such that we, uh, you know, step up to the plate and, uh, you know, try our best with what we have given to us by the Lord. Uh, just a final thought with which to leave you. I think it's fascinating. I don't know if you find it fascinating, but I find it fascinating that they're all ardently trying to seek a true life or trying to engage with their human experience. And it's like, okay, you got a problem to sort out. Well, we should sort it out together. You know, their instinct is that they should undertake this common pursuit in monastic devotion. You know, the monasticism that they're talking about here isn't quite yet the monasticism that comes to mind when we think about, you know, Benedictine monks in their, their black habits. But it's a very interesting solution because they're like, we need time for intense reading, for intense reflecting, for intense praying undertaken together. And I think that that's part of the inspiration too of the podcast is that we would read these great texts together, that we would think through them, that we would reflect upon them, that we would pray into them, you know, and that in so doing, it would help us to sort through our lives and offer our lives more generously back to God. So that's our hope. Boom. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>